Welcome to the WDND Roleplay Radio Podcast. My name is Cliff. Hello, and I'm Jason, and we'll be your hosts for our discussion of all things RPG and occasional tangents into other areas of geek culture. As promised last week, this episode is going to focus on our ongoing love affair with the setting of Eberron. We're going to go into some of the reasons that we love the system so much and why, if you haven't taken a look at it, maybe you're overlooking one of the best things that D&D has going for it right now. Absolutely. This is going to be a very interesting podcast. I love this system, uh, but I think we should start, you know, at the beginning of this entire thing. So let's start by getting into the origins of the campaign setting. If you don't know, this was created by Keith Baker and it was chosen as the winner among a lot of different submissions for Wizards of the Coast. Uh, back in about 2002, they had a fantasy setting search and this was chosen and then adapted upon, built upon, and then it was eventually published in 2004, I believe, uh, for the third and 3.5 systems uh, with co-writers of Bill Slavicek, hope I'm saying that right, as well as James <laughs> Wyatt. And there are a few people that, that want to get on the internet and be a little bit salty and mention the fact that Keith Baker was kind of an insider. He did work for the company. And he wasn't a creator of that stature yet. He he was a little guy. And he made something that we really, really love. And I, and apparently we're not alone because it, it's it's pretty damn popular. It's wildly popular. It's one of those systems that's very different from your stock standard D&D settings. And we're going to go into other different features, different types of things that makes this setting so much of a, in my opinion, a breath of fresh air. If you want to try something a little different than your standard go save the princess type. <laughs> right. But it's, it still has a lot of features that are going to be familiar to anybody that has all they know about D&D are the standard fantasy settings and the standard fantasy tropes. It's, it's not such a drastic jump away from standard fantasy that it'll catch someone totally off guard. It's like you said, it's a fresh take on heroic fantasy. One of the first points that I want to bring up why I love this setting so much, it, it doesn't have as much to do with the setting. It, it has to do with how the creator has been like a steward for it. Currently, he engages with the fan base, but he doesn't try to dictate and say, this is exactly how to play my setting. And I love that. He functions as a guide, not as a dictator. And one of the things that the current generation is missing is in the something that was different in the past and currently. Today, we have social media. And it's so easy to gain insight about what popular people are thinking just from what they're willing to post. In the past, if you want to know what someone's inner thoughts were on a subject, you might get lucky to get some type of pen pal correspondence with them. This was the case for the author of Lord of the Rings and the authors of the Cthulhu Mythos and even the people that wrote the U.S. Constitution and its amendments. When people want to argue back and forth about the meaning of something like this, they can refer back to the letters that were written between the different correspondence that have been released to the public. Now, we have the internet and social media. If you want to ask somebody a question now, you don't have to wait for a letter. Often, they'll put it up on Twitter. And the creator of Eberron has his own website. He answers mm -hmm. questions there on a pretty regular basis. Yes. And his answers are just really insightful because they dive into some of the areas that maybe at the time when the books were written, they weren't asking those questions. Or it's because people are asking questions about something that they didn't have time to cover in – give it a place to shine in any of the published materials. His website is a gold mine for what if scenarios that you can add to your own campaign. And I think the best achievement that he has as a creator is that he puts all of this stuff out there for you as the GM to implement 
in your Eberron if you want. There's something mm-hmm. about that that's so similar to what it's like as a parent when you reach a point when you have to take your hands off the reins of controlling your child's life and let them go be their own person. Every time he says that in your Eberron, that's the feel I get from it. Like he loves Eberron, but he doesn't own it. The players own it. When they play, it's their world. He just right. got the ball rolling, and the care that he still shows for the sitting shows me how much he loves that people want to play ball with this thing that he's created. Absolutely. So that is one of the main things that is very different from other campaign settings. You know, We'll get into some other stuff. The main thing is that it's a world that provides a framework, and then you can take that use things, take some things out, that kind of thing. I I like that in the campaign setting, definitely. Yeah. One of the other great things in this game setting is that when you start a campaign, you get pushed back to this one event, the ending of the last war. Mm. The, The entire setting is geared to starting right after the major war across the continent. The literature gives the start date as four years after that war. The tensions are still high, and the world is coming to grips with this new peace. There was a huge cataclysm that was a wake-up call for the opposing nations that maybe war wasn't the answer. In the aftermath of that cataclysm, these nations don't want peaceful relations with their neighbor as much as they just want to make sure they're not the next country that gets magically nuked. It creates an uneasy peace that has a lot of animosity from the previous actions of the other nations against each other. But the show must go on, and the politics of the day under the new peace treaty mean that the citizens of all these countries get to travel rather freely back and forth. I love the fact that this game setting always defaults back to that era of time. It's a very good springboard into so many of the geopolitical themes that Eberron is built on. The core countries in the main continent are like family members just waiting for the next argument over the holiday dinner. (laughs) They're cordial each other's face, but boiling with animosity right under the surface. Yes, yes. There's so much tension going on. You have (laughs) kings and queens. You have all sorts of different political groups. There's one country, Breland or Brelin, however you want to pronounce it, that is has a king, but there are so many factions that are looking to change that structure, trying to turn it from a monarchy into a more representative government style, like a parliament or something like that. And even the king is leaning towards that. He's given some powers to create a parliament and you know, have people vote and all that kind of stuff. So that's a very interesting take. There's a website called uh, TV Tropes that goes into different types of tropes that most television or film or books fall into, and they put them in categories. And they did one about Ebron in particular, where they were talking about the different countries of this one continent uh, known as Corvair, and it has these nations, and they pretty much broke down how they are similar to nations of the real world. And they put Breland to be kind of like a colonial America slash British. So it's like right before Revolutionary War type of thing. That's that's a good way to think about it. And there's other countries that are have different styles and different takes on things. The way that a lot of our world, Earth cultures are represented is very cool and it it allows you as GM or the player to kind of use maybe accents or mannerisms that you would put with some of these countries and use them as a placeholder. If you're going to be from the Eldian reaches, maybe your character is going to be like the fur traders and trappers from the Netflix show Frontier with Jason Momoa. Maybe if you're from Undare, you're going to be like the fencing and dueling enthusiasts that were trading insults back and forth in Assassin's Creed 2. There's Magic uh, France. Magic <laughs> France. Magic France, Magic Italy. Exactly. You know, I mean, if you're going to be from Thrain, you know, everybody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're going to be up in Carnath, of, of course it behooves you to speak with a ridiculously overdrawn Slavic accent. And yes, Steve, I'm talking about you. Um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that, that setting, it's, it's just ready to go at that time period and with all of those countries ready to go. Uh, one of the other things that I love about Eberron is its take on 
the mage punk aesthetic. A lot of people look at Eberron on the surface and they talk about steampunk. And I can see where that easy bit of confusion comes in, but the more correct term would be mage punk, possibly arcane punk, or magic tech. But all mm-hmm. of their technology is not based off of applications of engineering through science as much as it is engineering through magic. Magic permeates every part of life in this setting. And we'll get into that a little bit more later, but the way magic exists supports the society. So you can have a lot of Dungeons and Dragons fantasy tropes, but still think have things like bullet trains, have cool airplane fights, and vehicles moving through the air like zeppelins and submarines, and things that honestly seem right out of a Jules Verne novel are some of the more interesting creations that are in the vaults of the Dwemer of Skyrim, or some of the wonderful things that the Wizard of Oz has shown us over the years. Yeah, and then I like the fact that magic is tech. Think about it like that. There's almost a tech version or a magic version of a technology. Um, they have railroads, which are called lightning rails. They are powered by magic. You're mentioning the, the airships. They have airships. They can fly and all that kind of stuff. It's a wonderful way to have your same D&D stuff, but with that twist of having it like magical and techy. Yeah. Now getting back to the makeup of the countries, there's a lot of Cold War themes that can be found in the setting too. Because yep. each of these conflicting countries have their own agenda and it sets the stage for shadowy backroom geopolitical maneuvering that the major major powers played out in the 60s, 70s, 80s of our own history. If you love these types of things in your game, Eberron is the setting for you. If you like to throw political intrigue and maneuvering at your party, and a party that's built for social encounters, toss them in everything. There's Each one of the major, major nations could be mined for these types of situations. And with the last war just recently over, there's still victims of atrocities in the closing years and decades of the war that are still screaming to the powers that be for justice. There's hmm. even a war crime tribunal that is dedicated to bringing justice to the citizens of that Senate. The only problem is that some of the nations see some of the perpetrators of those crimes as heroes. Mm-hmm. If you have a high charisma party that leans into role play more so than combat and exploration, this is where as a GM you can go hog wild and create some elaborate stories using actual war crimes from history and then – you take what those perpetrators did and then paint them with the brush of Eberron, and there goes your big bads and the lieutenants for the current campaign. Absolutely. And just to bring up a little thing, I'm going to be starting a new campaign with my group for uh, my Saturday games set in Eberron. And we had to sit around and come up with, you know, how do we want to shape this campaign? I wanted to get the information from my players to see what would they be interested in doing since this campaign has a vast amount of things you can go with. Um, if you want political intrigue, you've got that. You want just go in a dungeon and get stuff and get loot, you can do that. Um, all sorts of different styles. And what we came up with for this particular campaign, which is going to be a challenge for me, which I'm going to be working on, is that they are all going to be refugees from the country of Sire that was destroyed which nobody knows how that happened. This entire nation was the grand, high magic, high fashion, high everything. They were the jewel of the crown, as it was put in one of Baker's books. And all of a sudden, boom, all all life gone. Entire country just wiped off the map. And what happens when you are a player character that survived that? There's lots of things you can do with that. So we're going to be running with that in our next campaign. And I'm going to be very interested in seeing what my group comes up with. That sounds interesting. It really does. I want to be on the last, I want to be on the last lightning rail train out of sire. Uh (laughs) One of my, one of my players said that, can I be on the last train? I got (laughs) (laughs) That's That's good. That's good. But like the trains are such a important part of Eberron. Uh, for the next reason, and that's the scale of Eberron. And w- when you just look at the map, it's just like, oh, look, another fantasy continent. And then you really look at how big the map is. Uh, when we came back to Eberron here in 5th edition, Jason showed me a website, and it had a distance calculator on it. And when I dragged the distance calculator across 
just the country he mentioned of Brayland, and I saw that Brayland by itself is the size of America at about 3,000 miles across. I'm like, good God, it was ridiculous how big the continent was. I'm not speaking about the distances involved when you get down and look at how big the primary continent is, but I'm talking about the time scale. The mm -hmm. history of Eberron goes back tens of thousands of years to different eras in which different entities were in control. And I'm not just talking about one sole, solo entity that controlled the world, but groups of entities. There was an age of demons and then an age of giants. I'm sorry, an age of demons and then dragons and then giants. And then the giants were overthrown by their henchmen elves. And like in each one of these eras, the downfall seemed to come from within. Like there was conflict within the group that controlled things. That led to their henchmen rising up and throwing them down and then so on and so forth. And over the years, that, that cycle has continued. They were defeated by, you know, heroes. Maybe like the, in the next upcoming group, like I said, they would be the ones that do it. If anything you ever want to do seems to be a conflict with something written in canon that people can look in a source book and go, that's not exactly how that happened 57,000 years ago. You can say, oh, well, that history book that you're referring to is wrong. Right. This is what actually <laughs> happened in my campaign world. And it's, so, it's such a great way to deal with you know, an ancient history type situation because it's vague, but it's still profound, kind of like the gods. And we'll get to that later, too. But like a lot of the current civilizations, and we've talked about like some of the different nations that are in Eberron, they are built on the bones of some of these fallen civilization. Some of them that were like strongholds of evil. Some of them that were fortresses of other humanoids that used to control the continent. The past is right there under the feet of everything that's going on currently in Eberron. And sometimes it comes to the surface. Maybe that's what caused that nation to get destroyed during the war. Nobody knows. And with that many different eras of time and then the continent being so big, even though so much of the continent is covered by these geopolitical machinations, there's still places on that continent where people really haven't settled. So there can be hidden things in the middle of these countries that people don't know about. Absolutely. There's so much you can do. The information is there for you to use or not use, but it's just so much stuff you can pull from. And just like Baker was inspired by the pulp adventures, like pulp comics of the past or films, like noir films and stuff like that. It's so much you can do. So much. Um, and one of the other things that lets you do so much with it is the moral flexibility. And I don't mean ambiguity, mm -hmm. but I'm talking about how there has been a deliberate change in how some things are done in this game world. And there's the, a lot of the flexibility is with how the different racial groups are treated in Eber. And, right. you know, w w it's years ago when Jason and I were running that hobby shop, we had one friend that would throw up his hand in solidarity with the green man. And he did it a little bit tongue in cheek, but he was very serious about his campaigning for equality in the real world. And he took those values with him into D&D. And he disliked when orcs and goblins were automatically treated as just evil cannon fodder. And it saddens me that we lost touch with him before the Eberron setting actually became our setting of choice. Because when we began using it as a campaign world, Alex Ori, if you're listening out there somewhere, I'm definitely talking about you. <laughs> it's like he wrote a letter to Wizard of the Coast and it was opened by Baker. And Baker said, hey, this guy's right. And he implemented everything he said over the years into Eberron. The, the goblinoid people and the orcs are not evil minions of the Dark Lord. They're proud people with the storied past. And in the times, their kind stood up to the darkest forces that were seeking to destroy the mortal world. And they won. There wouldn't be an Eberron of the current day without the actions of the heroes of those two groups of, of people, races. Right. And I love that that sitting, it wasn't that the humans, it wasn't that the elves, it wasn't that the dwarves were the race that beat back the forces of darkness and chaos. That the time of those climactic battles, no, it was the orcs. orcs. It was the hobgoblins. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that saved the world. And the modern era of the setting, not all of the races know that. And one of the things right. is if somebody wants to play 
uh, orc or hobgoblin, they can rub that in the nose of the humans and the elves and the dwarves. That's that's it's such a great thing that that setting has built into it. Now, should I even go here? Because <laughs> you know what I want to talk about. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so. Like I said, um, when we got first got into Eberron, it was a fascinating world. We've read it cover to cover. There is a a continent. We've been talking about Corvair, which is um, pretty much where a good portion of the action is. But um, there's other continents. There's Sarlona, there's Arganesson, and then there is Zendrik. Zendrik is the southernmost continent, and it is a kind of blend of like jungle deserts, all kinds of wild terrains, but it's styled like to be the unknown continent where people can go to explore and find all sorts of ancient artifacts and ancient gems and all kinds of things and discover different types of magical resources. And they have the race of drow there. And now this is when I was 20 something years old and I was still, I'm still kind of militant, but not as. (laughs) But so when I first read it, the drow were put in the jungle they were given boomerangs and stuff and all and they were like the savage natives and stuff and the feel of Ebron being like pulp movies and pulp fiction i was got a king kong vibe from that and i was like my old my older 20 my younger 20 something self was like wait a minute why they put the blackest uh race <laughs> from D and put them in the jungle so i i had a bit of trepidation with that didn't stop me from playing the game. I was like, okay, I kind of get it, but I'm like, wow. So eventually I got over that. It wasn't that big of a deal. I see where it was at, but that was just the main little small thing that I had about Eberron. Everything else was great. But like we were saying that uh, this place, Zendrick, is a place for exploration, is a place where people can get their fortunes made by finding these old artifacts finding old ancient cities with lots of treasure and all sorts of things. And there is a one big city called Stormreach. That's pretty much the waypoint to get from quote unquote civilization into the deep, dark jungle, desert, whatever environment you're going into in Zendrick. Deepest, darkest Zendrick. Is that the phrase yes. that you're looking for? Deepest, darkest Zendrick, right? Yeah, right. And that's what it was. I've had campaigns that I have done Starting out in Zendrik, exploration, learning about ancient cultures, giant culture, dragon culture, things of that nature. So there's lots of things that you can do with that. It, it's again, it's it's kind of a tip of the hat to the scale of Eberron and everything that it has to, to offer. We talked a little bit earlier about Mage Punk and some of those themes, but that that's more of like a stylistic part of the setting. But for practical purpose, the phrase, not high magic or low magic, but wide magic, should be like a guiding mantra for GMs. There is incredibly powerful magic hidden away in the corners of Eberron, but it's not not commonly accessible to players, and you're not going to find a lot of Conan-type situations where the heroes just eschew any type of magic use, because that's not what I do. I don't use magic. In Eberron, magic is everywhere in every corner of life in in that setting because of that it's wide magic magic is everywhere they have candles that aren't candles but they're actually little bits of magic on a stick that pretty much everybody knows about they can stick one of those in their pocket and pull it out whenever they need it Mm. and they only cost a couple of silver kind of like a flashlight today it's it's very easy to get a hold of a flashlight it doesn't turn everything into the modern world, but it gives the common people of Eberron access to simple magic on a day-to-day basis. And that's something that should be pervasive in every campaign. Jason here, he always bemoans the previous editions of Eberron and how players treated magic item shopping as magical Walmart. Magic Walmart, yes. Yes, and, and yes. you're not wrong with that. and You're absolutely right. And for those of you that are of a certain age, you remember the days before Amazon uh, we had catalogs that we looked through at Christmas as a child. So we'd flip through those pages and be like, oh, I want this at Christmas, and I want that at Christmas. And that's exactly what players did in 3rd edition, looking through the DMG for the next <laughs> item that was going to let their character ascend to the next level of badassness. Right. And that's not really an aspect of what 5th edition does, because they've made magic items a little bit harder to get. But common magic items and even uncommon magic items are still not really difficult to get a hold of in, in this setting. And any magic item that can make life easier 
should not be that difficult to get because there's entire guilds that are focused around providing these wide magic type services to the people. Healing, transportation, manufacturing, safety, security, either like uh, bodyguards or just protecting your property. Uh, Entertainment. You know, almost every aspect that can be covered by a mega corporation has one of these major guilds that is in charge of it. And it's, it's like the better business bureau of Corvair. That's, that's how you get in the business. So that's, that's a cool part of this. Just having these different, what they call dragon marked houses. They run a specific type of business and they are the monopoly of it. I mean, you can try and run a business that's not affiliated with them, but you might run into some problems with that if you're not, you know, down with them. So they have all these different dragon marked houses, one or two or three for specific uh, racial groups. Um, humans have the most. Um, there's a couple for elves, half orcs, halflings, all that kind of stuff. So that is where if your character, if you want to have your character have be a part of this corporation or a dragon marked house, and be a prominent member, you can have what's called a dragon mark, which appears on your body at puberty or with an intense a traumatic event will cause it to appear and you get extra magical abilities. But with that comes a responsibility, perhaps, that you are working for the house or you have some kind of ties to them or something like that. Yep. Those, those privileges, like Jason said, come with responsibilities and if you have a dragon mark and you never want to associate with the house, then you also become kind of infamous because you're like, oh, you're the rogue dragon mark. You don't want to have anything to do with the house of healing. And if you were a member of the house and you did something bad, they can basically excommunicate, which is kind of even worse because you, it's not you didn't want to play, but you played and you did it wrong. It's just another level of the complexity of what life can be like in in that setting. You can have those dragon marks. So, I mean, it adds extra stuff to your character. It's you, You're basically a variant human or variant elf or variant whatever with that specific special ability. And it sets you up to be a hero. And, well, that's another thing I like about this setting. It's a world that needs heroes. In other Dungeons & Dragons settings, uh, Forgotten Realms, I'm looking at you. Your, your characters are like mice looking for table scraps that have fallen off the plateau. Up there where all of these name heroes have had their grand adventures. And yes, I, I tried to say that in all caps because it's exactly how Forgotten Realms feels to me when I've played it in the past. So, you know, these other characters, they've been there, done it, bought the t-shirt, turned around, <laughs> got marketing deals, and slapped their names on spells that are on spell books in different dimensions. You know, I mean, what are you going to do about it, punk? You're, you're on such a lower level. What are you going to do now that we fix the world? Eberron is a world that's barely hanging on by the threads, and it needs heroes. And there's mm-hmm. lots of named people in the lit- literature, but they're not epic-level people. They're people that have, like, stood up and done good but most of them, like the kings and the queens and leaders of like large chunks of communities, maybe 10th level, maybe 13th level's equivalent. Yeah, I'm talking like the higher end of people, like mm-hmm. the archpriest of, of the church, not the little girl that's channeling the actual fire that's like, you know, like the messiah, not her. She's, <laughs> she, she's got real power, but, but like, you know, the, the king that, uh, wears a lot of sunscreen. I'm not going to say any names. You know, he's 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 got some levels on him. The the king the the kings that uh, did like significant black backroom dealing and and stuck daggers in in their opponents' backs. I mean, I may be talking about Undare, but may not. You know, mm. pe- people like that that have done some stuff. They've got some levels under their belt. Right. But and then, but those are NPCs. I'm not specifically talking about like the enemies. There are threats out there that are in the mid-teens, but they're not the people that are out there fixing the problems. They are the fucking problems the that problem. you need to, your characters need to go deal with. You know, and I'm, I'm talking like um, Mordain the Flesh Weaver and the Lord of Blades and, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And uh, maybe 
a king that might need sunblock, he might be on that list too. You know, <laughs> you know depends on what 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 your campaign is like. Uh, but this world needs heroes. That it's it's had a war. There are there are well known people out there that might not be high level the way an adventurer can get. Mm-hmm. And eventually, and and one of the beautiful things I loved in that first long term Eberron campaign we played back in Third Ed is when our characters got to be so well known, we had gained renown in the world. And it was it was something that you as a GM and you know, golf clap for Jason here, he he made that feel like an achievement that our characters had. We went into places and people saw our airship and they'd be like, yeah. oh, it's the so and it's uh, the God, I can't remember the name of the group, the Sojourners of Sharn. Something like that. Yeah, it was something like that. Oh, it's the Sojourners. They're here. You know, we've read about you in the Korenberg Chronicle. We saw we saw the picture of you uh, standing on top of the head of the red dragon, you know, stuff like that. It was it was so cool to be the named heroes that had done so much, you know? So yes, our artificer did not have a specific repeating crossbow named after him. A no. wizard <laughs> did not have a spell called Archimedes bitch slap in the, in, in the magic books, but we mm. were known in our world. And right. that was, that was amazing. It, it really was. And that's the key. You, you want to make your, players feel like they've made significant contributions to the world at large. When you are thinking of campaigns, they've like, you got to think of that. At least I try to. It was like, so what impact will the group be able to make if they go on this mission or if they take the job from this particular person? Things like that. It's, it's a good thing to keep in your mind when you are coming up with adventures or even adapting old adventures and stuff like that, which I've Right. Like which sometimes. <laughs> yeah, Jason Jason's very good at doing that. You know, we're we're talking about like named heroes and how, you know, there's no named heroes, but you know, we're playing in a fantasy role playing game. But what about the gods? Aren't the gods mm-hmm. gonna step in and do something? No. Mm-hmm. Not Neveron. The gods, they've been there. They've done that. They bought the t shirt and started a religion. That's what they did. You know, back in back in the ancient exactly, did they? We, we think they did. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. It's, it's part of that scale again. When the gods did whatever they did, it was so long ago. Are we sure they did that? Well, you know, the gods are present in Eberron, but they're not present on Eberron. Their religions are, and their worshipers are there in every corner of the world. But you're not going to be tripping over the gods themselves because they're just not tied up in mortal businesses. They're, right. they're there because they give their followers power. But it's their followers that you really got to watch out for. Clerics, paladins, druids, any type of divine caster in this in this system, they're, they're going to be getting – they have a very tenuous grasp on the power that they have. And they're not going to be getting like dream portents from the deities every time you turn around. They might be able to get a specific answer using spells, but they might not get that answer from, a, from the god themselves, but from one of their emissaries that works in their home office. So, you know, you're, you're not going to have Athena, Apollo, or Artemis popping down to the mortal coral to dispense life lessons to your paladins in a moment of weakness because the gods are kind of hand off. The gods did their thing, like, like Jason said, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But, the, you know, with these different cycles of history, the, maybe the gods were just badass heroes Way back or when, dragons. or dragons, dragon heroes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's so many. What, what were they? Yeah, there's a lot of different stories about religions and how they came about, and it gives that flavor of yes, there's divine magic. It happens. You pray and you cast a spell, and something happens. But is that coming from a source, or is it coming from within you? There's religions that say all the powers in within you, not some outside force. So there's different options there as well. They have the standard sovereign host, which is your your stock standard kind of pantheon of gods of civilization and, and nature and the dark six are the evil versions they, of they, them. They, they, that's the, their their pantheon is is stock standard European folklore mm-hmm. feeling, 
But the way the pantheon is set up, it's very much like the Egyptian pantheon, where you got the good guys standing over here in the light, and then, oh, don't worry about the guys standing over there in the shadows. They're just jackasses. That's right. that's how <laughs> the pantheon is set up. It's, it's very mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. And they have, that's just one of the many <laughs> right. religions that are there. <laughs> right. You got another one that's gaining popularity called the Silver Flame. And it is an interesting mix of uh, the structure, kind of reminds you of a, a Catholic or Anglican type of church. Yeah. Like a very early version of those. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's also things that, that makes you feel like, you know, it could be kind of Jedi ish because there's a dark side to it. There's a light side to it, type of thing. So it's but very it, interesting. If if you know much about real world religion, a, a lot of the silver flame on its face it feels Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, like in my, my joke earlier about the Spanish Inquisition, they they have inquisitors right. that go out and do this stuff. But if you dig down deep, it really has a lot of elements of Zoroastrianism, which is. Um, it's it's a uh, Middle Eastern religion, very popular in Iran back in the day. It was a uh, after the Persian Empire. You know, if you f- go back and look at it, it revered fire as a cleansing force, but there was shadows involved too. So a lot yeah. of the the silver flame. If you're a student of like religion and you know Zoroastrianism, it fits. A lot of the themes fit very well. And then that's like I said, that's that's just two examples. <laughs> Of and, religions, and, you know, and so then there's plenty others. There, there's one called the Seekers of the Divinity Within, and they, uh, unfortunately, they kind of got tied up with like the Lich Queen, the Blood of All, because mm-hmm. they believe that the gods and anyone that wants to preach about the gods are basically con men because they're getting you as a follower to let them tap into your power that you have as a living being with a soul, right, and the blood of all, and I'm sorry, the seekers are really cool because they don't really hate on the undead. You can have undead that work as members of your community in Eberron. Now, yes, most undead, they feed on life energy, the sentient ones do to, to some degree, or they have like one specific thing that's keeping them animated. So like mummies, they have an oath or a, have a, a faith. They have something that they're in service to. That's what keeps them going. But like vampires, you know, they have to feed. And then there's other types of undead that they have to touch and drain. Like those types of undead are a little bit problematic. Well, this specific religion, they understand or they believe that when your life is over, that's sad. But if a shadow of you can exist and help others that are still of the faith, that's not necessarily the end of the road for you. You can still be of service. So with that specific religion, They've actually got clerics that are mummies that tend to their holiest of places mm-hmm. that know all the rituals, know everything, and they're kind of treated like saints because they've made the ultimate sacrifice. They weren't able to ascend to this godhood that everybody potentially could, but they're still putting in nine to five or, well, they're undead, the twenty, the 24 to 24, not nine to five. They're, they're putting in all their time for the faith. It's, it's such a, it's, a, it's another one of those things that like flips standard tropes on their head. I mean, there's a mummy that's basically like the arch cardinal of this faith in a country. And he, he doesn't have any rights because he's undead. He can't vote. He can't own property. He can't do this. But he's like one of the most respected clergy of that faith. So and many options, many, so many options. Even Druid have different types of Druid orders. They're different. They have different takes on the natural order and how they apply that to. And there's one particular Druid order that is primarily to keep the bad things out from other (laughs) planes and other dimensions. They keep them out. They go in there to look for these magical seals that were created to keep these horrible beings known as Dalkir from coming through and causing all sorts of problems like they did in the past. And that's part of that rich history. So many things you can do with Druids, with clerics, paladins, all kinds of uh, faiths based characters so now i think we should go into another topic what we was talking about before the different racial characters you can choose goblinoids are stock standard you can you can play them you can play goblins bugbears hobgoblins it's, it's not a problem you have different types of halflings 
elves, dwarves, half-elves, everything like that. They have a specific race known as the Kalashtar, which are more of a, on a psychic bend. It's not my favorite, but Cliff can go into that. <laughs> I just don't think you like characters that can read the minds of your NPCs. That's yeah. one of the things. <laughs> I mean, Jason mentioned the Kalashtar, but the Eberron brought in four new races. The Kalashtar were one of them. They pretty much look like humans with like anime colored hair and uh, like uh, pretty glowing eyes or something like that. But yes. they're all psychic. Then the th- other three races, one of them has like a taint of lycanthropy. So they have animal like traits. And that's pretty cool. They can kind of like go into an animal frenzy a couple of times a day, just like a barbarian can rage. Right. Um, then, then we have the Warforge. Uh, pretty much everybody either likes or hates them. The construct people that were originally introduced in here. And then they've got an entire race of shapeshifters called changelings. They're, yeah. they're like doppelganger kin. And they, they can take the appearance. I think currently they can even change their size to go down to small. So they can look like any of the humanoid races. Eberron put those four extra races on the table. And like Jason said, they have all the standard races from the player's handbook. And they'd be culturally they changed how some of these races work so i mean you'll find elves that live in the natural regions of like the eldine reaches which is mm-hmm. very wilderness very foresty so yep. you can have like the standard riverdale type elves out there but then they've got the elves that live out near the steppes and the deserts that act like genghis flipping con yes and they're just raiders the valinar elves elves. and then then there's the elves that commune with their ancestors that have like a different a version of undead that work off of positive energy rather than being the negative undead that that constantly are feeding off of living things these are sentient they're not undead what are they called jason they're well uh, they in three five they call them deathless deathless that's the term i'm looking for they 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 didn't want to call them undead they called them deathless because they're corpses that have been infused with positive energy mm-hmm. and they're they're basically like um uh, uh, sentient repositories of ancient knowledge because they are ancient they, they have are been the, there and done that exactly the dwarves pretty much are the same <laughs> goblins I'm I'm sorry not goblins gnomes mm-hmm. they uh, they have like a little uh, uh tyr- not tyranny they they have like a big brother type government where where there's like secret police and everybody's like don't say anything bad against so and so because they're always listening but they do a good job of keeping the order so they're not really evil they're just nosy yeah halflings they've got halflings that ride dinosaurs yeah <laughs> it's 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 awesome it's really interesting cool. blend of culture and fantasy oh, there with the- I, know, I know we're running long mm-hmm. um, because this was a love letter to, to Eberron and I, we, we were going to talk. I've got a few more things to hit, but in this one, I wanted to talk about Droam because oh, okay. one, there's one country in Eberron that it doesn't have diplomatic relations with most of the other countries, most of the ones that were involved in that war at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Droam is ruled by a conclave of three hag sisters that are pretty flipping powerful. They're not just basic hags, they're hag XXL. They have gotten a bunch of different monster clans to come together as a governmental body to the western frontier of that country, Braylon. That country is trying to be legit and the five nations that are mostly the humans and humanoid races, they're like, yeah, yeah, nah, we don't want none of that. But Droam <laughs> is is legitimately making moves to make themselves a, a power block. Legitimate. Mm-hmm. And the other five nations, you know, th- when they need mercenaries, they'll hire gnolls from Droam, even though they don't like to admit that they're getting – yeah, they will do stuff like that. And there's – an entire region on the far side of Droam called the Shadow Marches, where the orcs, those druid orcs are from. Mm-hmm. And the headquarters for one of those major dragon mark houses is way out there. And that's where they can find these dragon shards. And dragon shards are, are like uh, just they're just an element in the world. They're they're crystals. There's three different types, and each one of them has a different type of ability. But in that specific region, it's one of the last 
places where they have a really good supply of Eberron dragon shark. And so it's, it's, right. And, And so they have, it's kind of like the, the California gold rush here in America. A lot of prospectors want to get out there and go. So Jason was talking about his campaign with everybody being refugees from Sire. A campaign idea I've kicked around with Jason is kind of based on a new lightning rail track cutting across Droam from Brayland to the Shadow Marches, just like happened in America when they connected the East and West Coast with railways back in the era of cowboys and conflicts with the natives the tribes that didn't want the steel horse to come through their territory and right. how that can kind of, you know, you could take, again, take real world elements, things from history, things from pop culture, go to AMC plus and, and binge watch hell on wheels to get some thematic <laughs> stuff. And, you know, if you want to do a more humorous tent, you go watch blazing saddles. You, right. you take, you take all of these things that talk about building a train across the old West and you, you strip away the Western tropes and then you replace them with Eberron things and you'd be surprised how well that fits. Yeah. And that, that's a campaign that I really want to run. And like Jason polled his players that knew about Eberron and they all decided to have an origin from the same place. With this campaign, this is what's happening. How would your character be involved with building this railway? And then the the characters can kind of like take the different class options that they want to do, race options, and then, you know, work themselves into a story of how they want to be part of this thing that's getting ready to happen. You know, Eberron is just this big open toolbox for players and GMs to just have so much fun with. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I know we're oh, he's so- put out some two books. Let me bring those real quick. He's he's got two books out. Um, Chronicles of Eberron, I believe, just came out, and then he had the other book. I don't remember which one he, he put out. Two yeah, which Eberron specific books, and they have more information about what you can add to your game. So if you wanted some more information about it, don't stop with just the Eberron book. The fifth. Yeah, look ed- up- Look up Keith Baker on the DMs Guild mm-hmm. and like, you know, wherever fine PDFs are sold. Right. Um, he's got, he's got, see, I've got it. I'm like looking for the PDF, you know, wish I'd had it up, but he's got another one called like Secrets of Eberron yeah. that, and I use that in our campaign. You know, I went through it and like talked with the characters and it basically, it's kind of like, it's not quite a feat, but it's like a character feature based on their backstory. And like, this is like an extra little thing you know about, but this is what it costs you to do that. Right. This is the thing that's kind of like floating over your shoulder. And it's it's a good book too. But yeah, I mean, if you're interested in anything we've got to say about Eberron, you look up Keith Baker uh, mm-hmm. and his work, like go, like go to his mm-hmm. website He's got all of his links. And like I said, you can go there. I know we went over 10 bullet points here. I do have to do one more thing that I'm always grateful to Eberron for is that Eberron gave us the Artificer class. As much as I love the class, it hurts me to say I've never played one. (laughs) Uh, You know, but it seems like every time I... And the reason for that is because every time I get to a group... It's full of spellcasters. They don't have a tank and they don't have a frontline damage dealer. They just have a mm-hmm. chorus of casters chanting away and pointing their magical mementos at enemies and popping off high damage and high enemy affecting spells. I love the idea of being a magical technician. You know, I, I want to make a Tony Stark character in D anD. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to. I want to cast every one of my spells. Like I'm pulling something from my Batman utility belt. I, I want to hit things with my hammer. And make the magical effects happen. And to me, that is such, you know, all of those things are such an Eberron type thing. To to me, magic is a craft. And then I'm crafting and I'm building the effect through my magic. And that's kind of the fabric of Eberron. That's the infrastructure that the modern setting of Eberron is built on. That magic is from the skilled labor force. Right. And the entire civilization is built on that. And it's such a cool concept. And you can't have Eberron without having the Artificers. Because no. the Artificers are like fundamental to that setting. And there's 12 classes in the standard D&D book. And there's 
13 once you get to Eberron. And, you know, Tasha's book added some extra classes with it and everything. But the number 13, kind of like last little little closing thought, it's uh, the the number 13 pops up all the time in the cosmology of Eberron. And 13 was called a baker's dozen. So 13 is a baker's dozen. And you see a baker's dozen in Keith Baker's creation all the time. The number 13 pops up all the time. That's why I love Eberron, because it, it belongs to us. You know, it, it, yeah, there's novels out there, but those novels, they have they nothing don't, to do with your world if you don't want them to. Exactly. And, <laughs> and people don't, well, this happened in such and such novel. No, that's that, that exactly. It happened in that novel. That doesn't mean it happened in Tamaril. That doesn't mean it happened in Kryn. You know, it sure as hell doesn't mean it happened in my Eberron, right. because Eberron belongs to you. And I, I want you all to reach out and claim it and love it as much as me and Jason do. And we have gone over. <laughs> yeah, we really have. I knew this was going to happen when we start pontificating on, on something we love this much. Because we could go on and on forever about this. But um, share your thoughts about Ebron. If you've played in Ebron, what did you find interesting about it? If you haven't, check it out. It's really interesting. And I think you will find something that you'll like within the pages of the books, the various books, not just the Wizard of the Coast products, the, Coast stuff. the other stuff, that- of supplements, especially Keys Baker stuff. He goes into more information that you can use. So check those out. Um, I just saw on Twitter that he is putting the first of his books about Eberron for fifth ed uh, on Roll20. So that's going to be available. If you're using Roll20, you'll have that book to utilize. Oh, and uh, w- one more thing. We were plugging mm-hmm. Keith Baker's products before. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people, one of the, one of the premier campaigns that everybody like wants to stick their toes in is Curse of Straw. Mm-hmm. And it, in a lot of ways, it's it's everybody's first feel for Ravenloft and like a demi-plane of dread. Well, in Eberron, there was the morning, the country that was destroyed. And Jason and I were joking about being on the last train out of, of Sire. Well, there, Keith Baker put out a product, which is called Dread Metrol, which was the capital of Sire. So it enables you to take the morning and Sire and basically make whatever happened to create the morning created a demiplane of dread, just like Strahd's little summer, summer resort place <laughs> in Barovia. And it's got the queen. It's got the war is still going on. It's, I've, I have that book. Planning on using it for the campaign that got side ra- sidetracked by the cancer diagnosis, but I'm not saying I'm not going to use it. But mm. dang, it was it's such a good read, <laughs> such a good read. And if you like that gothic horror thing, and you know you played Curse of Strahd, you're like, I need more of this. Come to Eberron and get that book and make it happen. It's there. It's, it is just it's ready to be used. Thank you if you stuck around to the end of our ramblings. We look forward to speaking to you again, and thank you for turning in to WD&D Roleplay Radio. Yes, and we definitely love to hear your comments, so go ahead and check us out. We're on Twitter. It's at WD, the letter N, D podcast. And also you can email us at WD, the letter N, D podcast at gmail.com. If you like what we're saying, please like and subscribe and hit that notification bell. Feel free to reach out to us, share your ideas, and become part of this conversation. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is WDND Roleplay Radio. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, Keith Baker, for making an incredible product. Have a great day. Have a great day. day.